And then Michael, I'll say, I think he's the best player ever. I don't think there'd be anybody as good as him. He's just unbelievable. People missed out not being able to see our practices because he was one guy that would go at you in practice as hard as he would in a game. I tell one story, and it's sort of an embarrassing one at, at that, but uh, somehow I got on a breakaway, and he's coming he's coming down the side, and I'm going to go up, and I'm like, well, I got to go lay it up, and he's going to block it back to the other side. And I go in and lay it in, and I'm looking around, where's he at? And he's over in the corner laughing. I said, what happened? He goes, well, I forgot you can't jump, and I overjumped you. <laughs> then you are in Australia right now. You're talking NBA basketball. You're talking great teams. You're talking great individual players. Takes it off, and there's number 23, and, of course, Johnny goes nuts. So we're all getting first bumps thinking about it now. I just tried to go out there and play my game. I have no idea what you're talking about, Adam. I don't like anybody. I'm not a people person. Strand, he made the pass. Yes. Christian, can you catch the ball? Yes. All the stars were aligned, and all the muscles fired at the right time, and I was able to get off the ground and throw one down. I was saving that as a surprise for you. And now, introducing your host for In All Airness, Adam Ryan. Welcome to episode 65. Thanks for joining me. Stay up to date with my monthly email newsletter. You'll receive exclusive details on upcoming podcast episodes, future high-profile guests to appear on the show, and plenty more. Simply visit inallairness.com slash news. Today, I'm excited to welcome 10-year NBA veteran Eddie Neely to the show. Personally, this was a very special conversation, as I've admired Eddie's on-court tenacity since I first watched him play, albeit via a VHS tape that I recorded from Australian TV, going all the way back to the 1990 NBA playoffs. We talk about that particularly and much more in this career-spanning conversation. Thank you, Eddie, for making yourself available. Show notes for this episode, including links to numerous topics that we covered, are at inallairness.com slash 65. Now, on to the show. My guest today was a four-year standout at Kansas State University. He played for 10 seasons in the NBA and is known to many as a tireless competitor who gave it his all on the court. Ed Neely, thanks for joining me. Oh, it's good to be here. Now, just before we actually get going there, Ed, I've seen you referred to as Eddie and Ed. What do you actually prefer? Oh, I go by both. Uh, my name is Eddie, but when I got to college, they shortened it down and just called me Ed. I'll stick with Eddie as long as I remember throughout this conversation. That's fine. Now, I read with interest that your dad was your high school basketball coach when you played at Bonner Springs, Kansas. That's about all I know about your high school career. How successful was the team and what was it like to have your dad calling the shots? It was fun. Well, it could be hectic at times. Uh, we uh, both are headstrong, and and we would battle a bit, but uh, it was all it was all good. He was, uh, you know, a big part of it. Uh, he was a, a fundamentalist, and you know, it started there where you know we would practice fundamentals, you know, every day. We had a good run. We were a three A school, which there was five A was the biggest, one A being the smallest, and and we made it to state twice. Uh, didn't quite win, but we had a good run. It was it was fun. At what age did you actually begin playing basketball seriously with the the view to perhaps taking it further beyond high school? You know, I really didn't get into the sports thinking I would go anywhere in it. Uh, you know, back in that time, you know, the, like today, I mean, you see the professional sports on TV every time you turn around. I mean, it's there's so many channels for it and stuff. 
I'm making myself old, uh, back in the, you know, the late sixties, early seventies, you know, there was only maybe one day on Sunday you'd have sports and stuff. So it wasn't as easy to, to see and stuff, but, uh, you just played it. I mean, it was, you had neighborhood kids and, and, uh, you'd go out and whatever sport was in the season, that's the sport that you played, uh, especially a small school. I mean, going into high school, I mean, you know, when it was football season, we played football, then basketball. And we didn't have baseball at the time. And I just played it because I enjoyed it. I loved the competition and, and I didn't think much about going further and, and probably until my senior year in high school or before my senior year started getting interested in, in maybe going to college to play basketball. Okay, and you mentioned football there. I just have to ask, given that you had a strong build, uh, did you love playing football as well? What sort of gave you the idea to focus on basketball or that's where the potential sort of showed? Well, I liked playing football and I actually probably had more scholarship offers to or interest in me playing football right. than basketball, but uh, it's a tough game. Uh, you know, my son's actually played it. Uh, my oldest son played four years at Texas A&M. He played a year with the Vikings. I enjoy watching it, but uh, I didn't enjoy getting up the next day after a game and having bruises everywhere and stuff like that. You know, the basketball is supposed to be, is a non-contact sport. so <laughs> It's supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, I, I enjoyed it a little bit better. Yeah, gotcha. Uh, although that's debatable sometimes about the non-contact when we get to the NBA side of things for sure about your career, but we'll get to that shortly. Now, you did mention... In- in your senior season was when you started to get uh, some interest from some colleges. What I read in researching for our chat today, you were a two-time academic All-American. Was it true that only Kansas State and Yale were the universities that actually recruited you strongly? Yeah, I had a, you know a couple other schools that, that sent letters and stuff, but uh, you know didn't really follow up and and that. But I went to a visit to Yale and, and enjoyed it. That campus was you know unbelievable. It was. Uh, I had a, a great time there and I look back and, and it could have been something that I could have done. But, you know, at that time, uh, being from the Midwest, it was a long way from home and, you know, having a big strong family, it was Manhattan was a little bit closer. Now, you played for four seasons under coach Jack Hartman at Kansas State University. I read about a great game that you played a major role in. It was during your freshman season. It was Kansas State at Kansas. You hit two crucial free throws, which sealed victory in the final seconds. Now, I might be testing the memory banks here when we're chatting about those sort of things, but what do you remember about that particular game playing against Kansas, who I can only assume would have been a big rival? I grew up only about 15 minutes from Lawrence, where University of Kansas is, and uh, my high school girlfriend, her dad, graduated from there, and he had tickets, and we would go to the games quite often. In fact, uh, growing up, you know, in the Big 8 tournament at that time was always the Christmas tournament was there, and I actually would go to watch uh, KU and Missouri more than I would watch K-State. And uh, my two oldest sisters, the twins, they went to K-State and ran track. And then my uh, next sister, she went there as well. So uh, that's when I started getting interested in Kansas State. And uh, then after going there and, and then being a freshman, growing up so close to KU and it being a big rivalry like that, being in that position to uh, uh, hit a free throw to win the game was uh, – you know, you can't explain it. It's just something that you uh, dream about. It was a big deal. Sounds like you've got a very talented family there as well in terms of what they've achieved also, which is great. The game I'm referring to was in February of 1979. So we're testing the memory base at this stage, but it's just great to relive some of these things and, and chat about uh, parts of people's careers that uh, have long since gone, but are fantastic memories that uh, still stay to this day. 
you made it to the NCAA tournament in three of your four college seasons, and 1981 was your best result where you made it to the Elite Eight. Can you describe some key memories from that time at Kansas State? Like, does anything particularly jump out atop anything else? I was real fortunate. I played, uh, you know, three years with Rolando Blackman, who went on and had a great career in the NBA and was just a phenomenal player. And that year we beat Illinois, who was ranked in the top 10 and expected to go places. And, and at that time, you know, it was, uh, I believe, I don't think they'd expanded it to 65 teams yet. It was still only 48 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And we had to actually play a game to get in. Uh, we had to play San Francisco. And then we won that game and we won the honor to play Oregon State, who was ranked number one in the country for almost the whole year. And Steve Johnson was the center on that team. We played them in Pauley Pavilion wow. and upset them. And then we got to play Illinois and beat them. And we couldn't get past North Carolina. Um, we gave them a good game, but fell to them. And it was a good run. We had fun. And it was funny because uh, in my rookie year, when I was with the Kansas City Kings, uh, Steve Johnson was on that team and Eddie Johnson. And Eddie <laughs> played at uh, Illinois. And, uh, it was funny. The first practice, he was, Eddie was giving me a hard time and I ended his college career, he said, and he couldn't forgive me for that. <laughs> That's great because Eddie's a former guest of the show as well. I've had him on the show and we chatted about his career at length as well. And it's great to hear that you've got ties, of course, going back to your college days against him and then being teammates when you got to the Kansas City Kings. So yeah, thanks for sharing that sort of information. Now, I believe as well, just before your senior season, your team toured Japan as well. In July of 1981 in some kind of world basketball championship. Do you have many memories of that trip overseas? We had a good time there. It was the Kerwin uh, World Championship. We played six games, Japan, China, and Czechoslovakia, and we traveled around there. It was fun uh, to see a different country like that and get to see some of the uh, history they had. And We won all six games and, and played well and and uh, just to uh, get to see the heritage and stuff like that was just a spectacular. Yeah, it would have been a great experience. Now, you did mention there for three of your seasons, you were teammates with the great Rolando Blackman. Could you tell even in your first couple of seasons playing alongside him and then watching him in practice, etc., that he was going to go on and be a great player in the NBA? Was he that talented that quickly? Yeah, he was he was that good. And uh, it's funny, my freshman year, I made the free throws to beat KU. We were playing in Manhattan, and we were playing the University of Nebraska. And we were down two, and he got fouled uh, with one second left. And, you know, I look back at it, and I, tell, you know, I told him after that game, I said, you know, your free throws tonight to put us into overtime were much harder than the free throws that I made to win the game against KU. And he looked at me like, why? And I said, well... When I was at, at Lawrence at their field house, it was crazy. They were booing and all that. And when you're shooting the free throws, you could hear a pin drop. It had been a lot more intimidating sitting there looking uh, to shoot f- two free throws uh, with nobody talking than when I was shooting them and people were booing me and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. And also, he'd have a history of doing this because in 1987, in the NBA All-Star Game, Rolando hit two free throws with no time left to force an overtime period as well in that game. But completely different circumstances, but interesting how history repeated itself. Right. Now, you left college with averages of 10.6 points and 8.7 rebounds per game. The NBA draft in 1982 was on June the 29th in New York. The Kansas City Kings 
selected you at pick number 166 overall in the eighth round. This was the draft where James Worthy out of North Carolina went number one pick to the LA Lakers. What do you recall from draft day and where were you and sort of how did you celebrate hearing your name getting called to become an NBA player? Well, I really didn't think that I was, I didn't think I was going to get drafted. You know, it was funny because they asked, you got drafted the 166 pick. And I said, yeah, I said, if it had been one more year, I wouldn't have got drafted at all because I think after that year, they dropped it down to two or three rounds. And I said, I was in the sixth round. So it's just timing. But, uh, I really didn't think that I was going to get drafted. Um, I thought my path was, I was, if I wanted to play on, I was going to go to Europe. I was actually in Webb City, Missouri that day, and I was playing golf with some friends of mine and, and uh, wasn't paying much attention to it. And my dad actually called me later that day to tell me that uh, I'd been drafted by the Kings. You still playing golf to this day? Well, I, I, I miss it. I haven't played in about a year and a half. I've got to have my hip replaced. I'm too big of a chicken to go in and have it done. Fair enough. It's affected my golf game, so I've, I've stopped playing. I, I'm going to get ready to have that operation done in probably the beginning of next year. and so I can get back on the golf course. Yeah, definitely. Well, I wish you all the best with that, goes without saying. So what was it like also to actually be selected by the Kansas City Kings, given that you were born in Kansas, you played your high school ball and college ball in Kansas as well, and then now you're playing with the Kansas City Kings in the NBA. Like, Did you feel fortunate? Did you welcome that opportunity, or would you have preferred to perhaps go elsewhere outside the state? How, how did that sort of work? I was happy about you know being at home and, and stuff, and you know, I was looking at the roster of the team and, and you know, they'd had a good year the year before. Reggie King had had a, a great year as a small forward. Larry Drew from Missouri was on the team and, and stuff, so I knew some of the players. They had two first-round draft choice that year. They took uh, Brooks Steppy and uh, LaSalle Thompson. Everything just worked out. I really wasn't looking to go to camp. Again, I thought that uh, if I wanted to play, it was going to be in Europe. Fortunately for me, it didn't turn out, and I ended up going to camp. You know, at that time, they brought in, um, there were 20 uh, rookies and free agents uh, that they signed that brought into camp. And fortunately for me, uh, the two first rounders held out and they weren't there. You know, it was quite interesting because uh, the first three days we did nothing but drills, uh, never scrimmage, never did anything, just these drills that I'd been doing from, you know, junior high, high school, college and stuff. And so it was just second nature to me. And, and, they made the first cut. They cut uh, 18 kids Wow! Um, after the third day. Basically, it was because I, I knew the drills, you know. You don't have time to learn them. And, and you know, when you got to step in, I think it was just a way that they looked to see if you could pick stuff up. And, and it was just stuff that I knew from, from early on. And the other players struggled with it because they were new to them. That helped me quite a bit. Yeah, I can understand. And in my introduction there where I said that you're known as a tireless competitor who gave it your all on the court, I'm sure that would have held you in good stead as well. Those scrimmages in the camp you're talking about, did Cotton Fitzsimmons, was he heavily involved in that? Were there some assistants who were running it? How did that sort of work? Oh, no. Uh, Cotton was in charge of camp. He ran the thing. They had Frank Hamlin was the assistant that year. He would help out quite a bit, but uh, Cotton was in charge. You know, that was one thing about Cotton. You knew who was in charge of the of the deal. In the early 1990s, when you played with the Suns for a couple of seasons, you'd also be reunited with Cotton as he was the Phoenix coach at that time as well. Now, in your rookie season, you were one of only two players, along with the aforementioned Eddie Johnson, who played all 82 regular season games. How did you adjust from making that transition out of four years in college and then obviously having a great first season where you played every single regular season game? What was it like to then step up to the NBA? 
Well, it's funny because, you know, every level you go to, you know, the game gets quicker. Uh, you know, you go from high school to college. I went back to a couple high school games and I'm like, man, did we move that slow? And, and of course, you know, <laughs> myself, you know, I'm not the fleetest of foot and I couldn't jump the highest and stuff. So I think that's why I was more really concentrated on the fundamentals and stuff, because you have to make a, allowances for shortcomings that you have. It was quite a, a bit different, you know, moving into the pros. You know, the game is so much faster and, and every game you're playing somebody that they were a star somewhere. You never had a night off. Yeah, true. Now, in the 1984 season, you made it to the playoffs, losing to the eventual NBA finalists, the LA Lakers. How was that first postseason appearance in the NBA? Well, it was pretty uh, interesting and stuff, you know, because growing up, Lakers and, and the Celtics were the teams that you watched and stuff. And now to play against them in the playoffs and stuff like that, it was fun. But, uh, you know, we were outmatched. They had quite a, a, a team and stuff, but uh, we played hard. We were just we were just outmatched. Now, later that year in 1984, you played with the CBA's Sarasota Stingers before signing as a free agent and returning to Kansas City in late February of 85, if I've got my timeline correct. Can you just talk a little bit about your mindset and how you dealt with the move to the CBA and then trying to fight your way back into the NBA? Well, I mean, it's you can't look at it that it's you know, a demotion or anything like that. Uh, at the time when I got released from the Kings, I, I actually was injured. I missed most of training camp, so um, it wasn't a, a huge surprise, but uh, I'd gotten a taste of it. I enjoyed uh, playing. I still wanted to, so it's something that you have to do. You have to go down, uh, and, you know, if you want to get back into the league, and, and uh, now you talk about being quite different. Yeah, you, you went from uh, the NBA lifestyle down to getting paid about $400 a week uh, to play a game, and, and, and you had some unique travel experiences. At that time, the CBA had a, a deal with um, American Airlines and we had to go through Atlanta. We had one game where we played in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and we had to rent cars and we drove to LaGuardia Airport, flew into Atlanta to fly back to Buffalo to get on a, a van. We all were in a van uh, to bus up to Toronto to play a game that night. Oh, wow. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> you had some uh, interesting travel arrangements and stuff, but it was something you had to do. And it was fun. You know, the following year, you know, I got let go again by the Kings when they moved to Sacramento. And I ended up playing that year with uh, Bill Musselman in um, Tampa Bay in the CBA. And, and I, I've told a lot of people that, you know, that might have been one of the funnest years I've had. I played uh, Sidney Lowe. Uh, kid out of Montana, Mark Glass, and we would go to the beach every morning and play either sand volleyball or go play golf. And and uh, we drove Bill Musselman crazy because he'd be calling <laughs> to have us come to practice, and because uh, we never knew where we were going to practice from the next day. And that, and you know, in the CBA, you only really had uh, nine players on a team. You might have an extra one to practice so you could scrimmage, but we had so many injuries the whole year that we only had you know usually six or seven good bodies and. We just say the heck with it. We'll go and work out at uh, playing volleyball or something. And, and then we'd show up for the game and he'd be there. What, what in the world? Where were you? We called. <laughs> and said, oh, man, the phone didn't ring. 
<laughs> but uh, you know, we ended up winning the championship, so I don't think he, he cared too much. <laughs> I knew you were a part of the Tampa Bay Thrillers team, but I didn't actually realize you went on to win the championship yet. So that's fantastic. So um, you talked about how he sort of related to some of the things that you were doing off court in terms of turning up then to play and train, etc. But I've heard some things about Bill Musselman being quite a strict coach, as far as at least when he got to the NBA level. How was it like to play with him, and what was it actually like to achieve that goal of winning a championship with a, a unique setup in the? CBA at that stage? It was fun. We had a blast. It was, it was a good team, the, the good owners and, and Musselman, you know, he tried to be tough and, and uh, it just depends on your on your mentality and stuff. He tried to be gruff, but you just knew what he was trying to do and you let it go by. It was no big deal. I mean, I had no problems with him and nobody on the team did. You know, his goal was to win and that's what he wanted to do. And it, he wanted you to do whatever it took to win. And that's what he expected. So, you know, some people might uh, take it as he was being rough, but that's just his final goal is he wanted you to be the best and wanted you to win. Yeah, understood. And it sounds like, again, it's all about perspective and mindset, I think, because the way that you seem to have approached those years leading up to becoming a mainstay in the NBA, it's all about how you approached it. So that would have uh, obviously helped you as well going forwards. Now, in mid-July of 1986, you signed with the San Antonio Spurs as a free agent, and then you played there for two seasons. And now in late 2015, as we're chatting, you live in Texas. How would you describe your playing days at San Antonio, Eddie? Well, we had, again, Bob Weiss was the coach. It was his first head coaching job, and he was a, a great guy. Uh, really, uh, really liked Bob. But unfortunately for him, my first year here, they, you know, they drafted David Robinson, the first pick in the draft, and he had to do the two years of the service commitment. Mm -hmm. You know, you take the best player in the country, you have him, but he's not going to be there to play. And that's going to throw you off. And, and, uh, unfortunately at that time too, we, we were a hodgepodge of players. We had some good ones, uh, had some great players, but you know, unfortunately they were a couple of them were on the, at the end of their career. And, uh, if we would have had David, it would have been something, uh, a lot better. I mean, to have him to come in and play would have been, uh, outstanding. But we had some great players. You know, Johnny Moore was one of them, and, and he got sick during the year. But we had Alvin Robertson, who I think is uh, really underrated as, as a player. He just, you know, you talk about a guy that didn't stop when the whistle blew until the, whistle, the game was over, and, and uh, he was a competitor. And we had Johnny Dawkins, Johnny Sunvold, and uh, Artis Gilmore and that. We had fun. It was funny because uh, the, <laughs> one guy goes, you know, just how much fun do you think we'd have if we were winning? <laughs> It was a good group of guys and played hard, and we made the playoffs one of the years. And again, uh, that team you keep talking about, the Lakers, they they knocked us out again. So I enjoy San Antonio. It's a great city to live in. There are a lot of uh, players that uh, used to play here that reside here still. I enjoy it. Uh, my wife, you know, is born and raised here and and stuff. It's a it's a nice town to live in. Yeah, great. You played for two seasons there with the Spurs. I think it was 28 wins in the first season and then 31 wins and that playoff exit against the Lakers in the 88 season from memory. Mm -hmm. So yeah, good to hear about that side of your career as well. Now, prior to the 1989 season, you signed as a free agent with the Chicago Bulls and you played 13 games in your first stint as a Bull before they traded you to Phoenix in mid-December in exchange for Craig Hodges. Can you talk a little bit about the move to Chicago and then how you responded to hearing the news of a trade to Phoenix? Well, uh, talk about being excited. I mean, uh, I had to go up there that summer and play in a little summer league to get invited back. And 
when they invited me back to camp, it was just, uh, you know, it's unbelievable. Get on a court with uh, the greatest player ever is just, you know, just something that you can't imagine. So I was excited about going back. And, and it was always funny because um, in 10 years, I didn't have a guaranteed contract until my eighth year in the league. Wow. Um, you always have to make the team and that uh, can be hectic. And, and it always was around Christmas that that was the, about uh, two or three days before Christmas, that was the day that if you were on the team that your contract became guaranteed. Mm-hmm. And so it was about that time, uh, my fiance at the time, she was moving from San Antonio to Chicago. She had all my stuff on a uh, truck. We were moving up there because we had just come off a road trip that I'd started playing. I averaged about 20, 25 minutes a game. And so, you know, I wasn't having her move anything up there until um, my contract was guaranteed and I was assured that I was going to be there the rest of the year. Yep. And so, uh, it looked like everything was good. And so, you know, I jinxed it and we had stuff moved up there and she came up and we found an apartment. I was living in a hotel still. And, uh, so we got back to the hotel and I opened the door and there must've been 50 messages under my door and the message light was going off and I'm sitting there and she goes, what does this mean? And I say, well, I think I just got cut. So I started uh, listening to the messages and and the first one was uh, Cotton Fitzsimmons and said, Niels, you're on the first flight out. We'll see you tomorrow morning. And she looked at me and I said, well, I just got traded. Oh, man. Which was a relief, but not for her because I had to be out on the eight o'clock flight. She's in Chicago for three days, didn't know anybody. And she had to wait another three days for my furniture and stuff to get there. So uh, she had to wait in Chicago and when they got there, tell them, uh, well, we need you to go uh, to Phoenix. <laughs> so wow. it was a relief to know that I was traded instead of cut. And, and I got out there with, uh, you know, Cotton. I, I knew Cotton well. And Eddie Johnson was on the team again. So I knew him. And uh, Jeff Hornacek, who played at Iowa State. And it was just a fun, fun group. Uh, I mean, I was fortunate the 10 years that I played, every team that I was on, was a good group of guys and and that makes it uh, makes it a lot easier to handle the stress and stuff when the players that you're playing with you like yeah definitely obviously you've played against Michael Jordan as an opponent in the previous four or five seasons before becoming a Chicago Bull but you mentioned how you're in the summer league to then get the invite to actually come to Chicago uh, and then become a member of that team what was it like in your first couple of meetings with Jordan and and Pippen when I would have been one or two years into his career as well Horace Grant those sort of guys Doug Collins was your coach how did you sort of go in those first few interactions with the guys and becoming a part of that Chicago team you know for me it was you wanted to be there, but not, you know, not seen, you know, be off to the side a little bit and, you know, go in and do your job and try to not make waves and stuff. Scotty and Horace were unbelievable. Yeah. I think they were in their second or third year mm-hmm. and, uh, just, they're just, just fun to be around. And, and John Paxson, just a class act. Then Michael, you know, some people asked me the other day, but I thought of Michael and I said, you know, I'll say, I think he's the best player ever. I don't think there'd be anybody as good as him. He's just was, he's unbelievable to be on the same floor as him. As I, and I didn't think that I deserved to be, I mean, and he never made me felt that way. You know, you were on his team, you were a part of it. And I've heard some people say that, no, he did make you feel like you weren't, you know, you weren't as good. And I, I never got that. Uh, I enjoyed playing with him. He was, he was a, a great guy and it was fun to watch him. People missed out not being able to see our practices because he was one guy that would 
go at you in practice as hard as he would in a game. And he would do some things in there that just, you know, was, it was, it was unbelievable. I've read some great stories about Jordan on the practice court and there's, there's plenty of great stories that have come about as how competitive he was in training, even as you just said now, as he would be in a game. But, um, is there anything particular that perhaps stands out from some of your training sessions, even, even when you became a member of the team a second or even that third time that, that spring to mind perhaps that you could shed a little bit of light on in terms of how competitive he would get? Oh, he would, uh, he would go at you. When he stepped on the floor, there was no taking any time off. He mean, he was going to give you a hundred percent. I, I tell one story and it's sort of an embarrassing one at, at that, but, uh, somehow I got on a breakaway and he's coming, he's coming down the side and I'm going to go up and I'm like, well, I got to go lay it up and he's going to block it back to the other side. And I go in and lay it in and I'm looking around. Where's he at? And he's over in the corner laughing. So what happened? He goes, well, I forgot you can't jump and I over jumped you. <laughs> Uh, that's fantastic. I shouldn't laugh at that, but that is very funny. Hey, if you can't laugh at yourself, uh, you know, it's not funny. Yeah. Well, I've been a prisoner of gravity my entire basketball <laughs> career, so I could definitely identify with that. Now, in, uh, in terms of the 1989 and 90 season, just before the season started, Phoenix traded you back to Chicago. Right. You were a Chicago Bull for the second time. What were you thinking when you realized that you were headed back to the Windy City? Well, I was excited. Um, you know, I was disappointed that I left, uh, you know, that year, but unfortunately going back and forth between Chicago and Phoenix were not two bad teams. You know, you had two teams that were made it to the, uh, semifinals, uh, that year. I mean, Phoenix, you know, you had Kevin Johnson, Jeff Hornacek, Tom Chambers, Mark West, Eddie Johnson, Tyrone Corbin, and Dan Marley. I mean, that was a heck of a ball team. Yeah. Then, you know, what do you say about Chicago? You had Cartwright, uh, Paxson, you know, Michael, Scotty, Horace, Stacey King, Will Purdue. I mean, that was a great team. So I couldn't have picked two better teams to go back and forth from, but I was excited. I wanted to stay in Chicago, and, and I was excited about going back. Yeah, it's great to hear you talk so fondly of your teammates on both those squads. You were surrounded by some great players and savvy veterans and just great guys from even just an outsider looking in. Some of the guys I've had a chance to chat to who were, and Eddie Johnson being one, of course. Right. Just great guys. So it's good to hear those sort of things. Now, you were pivotal in Chicago's playoff run during the 1990 season. One of my favorite games to watch was game four of the 1990 Eastern Conference semis. And before we got recording today, I was just quickly telling you about how special a memory that is my personal uh, experience because that was one of the first games that I actually remember keeping on videotape back in the day so I'm showing my age now that I recorded on videotape here in Australia right but in game four it was Chicago at Philadelphia and you won the game 111 to 101 your performance was terrific you had I think nine points on four of four field goals you made one of one free throws and importantly had nine big rebounds Jordan of course was Michael Jordan he had 45 points and then after that game, you were interviewed by Jim Gray, who was then with uh, CBS post-game. Now, I'm sure you recall the game, and you more than held your own on Charles Barkley. Do you mind just talking about that particular playoff series, uh, how important and how great of a game you had yourself there, and what it was like to know that you could definitely mix it up with the best in the game? Well, playing that series, uh, we went to Philadelphia up 2 nothing. A uh, sad thing happened. Uh, Scottie Pippen's grandmother passed away. She raised him, and... He had to go back to be with family and stuff. So he missed game four. So it was big. I mean, uh, we lost game three and, and there were some things said in the fourth quarter. We had the second unit in and we made a little comeback on him. And Charles Barkley, who's a good friend of mine, he's hilarious. I love Charles to death. 
Yeah. But he made a comment uh, that, you know, play the second unit all, all four quarters and, and uh, see how bad we beat them and stuff. So that put a little burr on, you know, under some of our, our saddles and stuff. And, and so when we found out that Scotty wasn't going to be there at that game, you know, I wanted to play hard for him because I know he was hurting. I know he wanted to be there, but uh, we wanted to get back to Chicago 3-1 instead of 2-2 and put a little extra spark in it, you know, try to uh, urgency to make it play a little bit harder. And with that team and, and that, uh, you didn't have to have something to, to make you play harder. You wanted to play hard for that, you know, for the team and, and that city. Chicago's a, a you know, a great sports venue. And I fit in there really well because it's a blue collar town and they really appreciate people that go in there and work hard. And, and that's what I tried to do. Yeah. And the phrase blue collar, that just stands out perfectly. I was thinking that as you were just saying it. So I'm glad that you uh, identified so well and the fans appreciated your efforts because they really enjoyed watching you play. I've got a number of games from that 1990 playoffs campaign. And anytime you checked into the game, they were right behind you in terms of uh, support. So I'm sure that would have been great to have them on your side as well, because they can sometimes be a little bit notorious for uh, either having it for somebody and uh, being against somebody. So that's good to hear. Right. Um, now, in the 1990 Eastern Conference Finals, you played in each of the seven games. The Bulls extended Detroit the full seven games before losing. And then, of course, the Pistons would go on to win the 1990 championship. Um, do you mind just talking about that rivalry, the Bulls versus Pistons? Obviously, you played in enough of those games as a member of the Bulls to identify with the strong I'm not sure if hatred is the right word, but definitely they were big-time competitors. So how was it being a part of that and getting so close to making it into the finals in 1990, yet coming up just that little bit short? Well, it was tough, uh, especially to them. I mean, it was a big uh, rivalry. I mean, they had an outstanding team uh, from 1 to 12. I mean, you can't take anything away from them. A good friend of mine, Scott Hastings, was on that team, and so we went to dinner a couple of times during that series. But uh it was tough. They won all four games on their floor. We won three games on ours. And, and I think I really look at it that, that way. If we could have, uh, you know, taken care of business during the year, won a couple of games we should have that we uh, didn't play our best and had home court advantage, we would have won that. You know, you never know. Mm. They were a great team, but that's just the way the series went. It just unfortunately we fell on the short end. Yeah, for sure. Now, before the 1991 season, you signed with Phoenix as a free agent. So you returned to the Valley of the Sun for two seasons on a, a very exciting team, as we were talking about previously, who had a very promising future. What was your take and, and your opinion on that return back to Phoenix for those couple of seasons, Eddie? Well, you know, as again, it was probably the toughest decision I made. I didn't want to leave Chicago, but uh, as I said, in the 10 years I had, the first guaranteed contract wasn't until I signed with Phoenix that year. And uh, my wife was pregnant with our first child and wanted to start taking care of the family and stuff. And like I said, if it would have been probably anybody else but Phoenix, I wouldn't have done it mm -hmm. uh, because they did make it to the semifinals that year as well. And, and they had a great nucleus. And, you know, I thought I just had as good a chance to get to the finals with them. And uh, so that's why I did. I, I was excited to, to go back. It was a good group and a, a good team. You were waived by Phoenix in early November of 92, and then you signed with Golden State Warriors later that month, and you played 30 games with Golden State before they then traded you to Chicago. So that was your third time with the Bulls. Can you just talk a little bit about that 1993 season and what it was like from your point of view, given that you played, I think, 11 games with the Bulls that season, but then you were on the inactive roster once the playoffs commenced? I guess it's a bittersweet story there. 
Well, beginning of that year, Phoenix wanted to put me on injured reserve. And I just felt that at that part of my career, waiting to see if somebody got hurt, I was at the end of my career and uh, felt that I could help somebody uh, out there. And so uh, it was sort of a mutual deal to be waived. Yep. Uh, then signed with Golden State, who, you know, I was excited about going out there. Uh, Don Nelson's one of the uh, premier coaches. And, you know, you have the team that they had, Chris Mullen, Tim Hardaway. Uh, I was excited, and unfortunately, the injury bug hit that team, and Don Nelson and I sat in a bus coming back from Sacramento one night, and he just said, Eddie, it's it's uh, it's going to be a long year because I've got to go youth and, and that, and with all the injuries to the veterans and stuff, and I understood, and, and he told me right then that he would help see if I could get trade with Chicago, get me back somewhere where uh, I have a chance to win a title, and so he did me a big favor and got me back there. Yeah, that's great. Now, you played during the regular season with the Bulls, and then when the playoffs commenced, you weren't part of the playing roster. Um, what was your role with the team as you got to sort of mid-April when the playoffs were starting to kick in? How did you spend that playoff campaign as the Bulls were on their way through to win the third consecutive uh, NBA Finals? You know, I showed up for practice every day and went through the drills, and I would scrimmage. You know, I felt that how I practice could affect the way that they played. So, you know, I looked at it that I was just as big a part of the team as if I was on the roster and, you know, gave it whatever I had. Uh, you know, if they wanted me to go out there and push these guys uh, in practice, I would do it. So, you know, I'd try to make them work as hard, keep them ready for the games. You mentioned how, obviously, you're great friends with Charles Barkley as well. You talked highly of him already. What was your take on watching the 1993 finals as an observer and not being able to actually take part in the games, being so close to the action, but yet, unfortunately, not being on the roster itself? Like, How did that work, and, and what did you do during the finals itself? Well, until Paxson hit that three to win the game, I was sitting there thinking, oh, my goodness, if I'd have just gone on injury reserve, I could be with Phoenix right now. It was funny. The two teams that I was with beginning and at the end were in the finals. So I was very excited when John hit that three. You talk about a last 30 seconds of, of a game where it looks like you've lost, it looks like you've won, to, oh my goodness, you can lose. In all of a span of 20 to 30 seconds, it was crazy, but uh, it was quite an experience. An incredible finish to a great finals campaign as well. So uh, some amazing memories there still, I'm sure. Um, now, I'd like to ask my guests, Basketball Digest had a regular feature which was called The Game I'll Never Forget. We might have already touched on one perhaps, but is there a game from your career, Eddie, that stands out the most for whatever reason that may be? You know, I think for me it was probably the first game I played in because, you know, I never thought that I would be in the NBA. I was always thinking I would go to Europe. Playing in the first game, was quite an experience and I think back about it all the time and I had a fun year my my rookie year and just gave me the idea that yeah I could play in the league there are positions for people that you know fill a role and stuff like that so it was exciting to me yeah thanks for sharing that now in 2014 you were inducted into the Kansas Sports Hall of Fame how did it feel to receive that great honor oh it was fantastic you know and it's funny um I got inducted uh, two years before that into the Kansas State University Hall of Fame. And uh, both those two deals, I had to follow a female athlete that uh, the one at K-State was track and star. She was a high jumper and just thought it was ironic. You know, with my jumping ability, I'd follow the gal that set the records for high jump. And then um, <laughs> in the State Hall of Fame, followed a great athlete swimmer who was, went to the Olympics and stuff and 
and uh, just you know sort of put me on that you know do i really belong in here because <laughs> like i said i i'm not the fastest i can't jump the highest but just gave me a, a you know a, an honor that uh you know, you go out there and you, you play the game. You know, we played it for fun. We worked hard at it and stuff and things happen. I think you had the intangibles though and, and you had the, the drive to want to make it and want to stay in the league. And as you said, you didn't have your first guaranteed contract until maybe eight years into your NBA career. So it shows that you definitely had longevity, uh, which is important. Um, how closely do you follow today's NBA? Well, living here in San Antonio, it's hard not to. Yeah, true. You talk about a group of guys that uh, you can tell get along and uh, buy into the system and stuff. And, you know, I mean, it shows that you play the game the way it should be played and, and good things happen. I follow it. And now a lot of my, you know, Jeff Hornacek's a coach and Steve Kerr's a coach. And, and uh, so friends of mine are, are still in it. So I watch what, what they're doing and stuff like that. Yeah, that's great. Now, your former coach, Phil Jackson, once said that having you on his Bulls teams was like having another coach in the franchise. Um, do you have any ambitions to enter into the coaching side of things at any level, Eddie? Well, I did there for a while. It just didn't work out. And then, you know, I've got four boys and the kids started coming out. And then I started getting involved in their coaching baseball, football, basketball, whatever it was. And it just seemed to each year went on and it got further away. And it's one of those things that the longer you're out of it, the harder it is to get back in. So it just didn't seem to work out. Yeah, I'm sure you have plenty to offer if that opportunity ever presented itself. So see how that goes going forwards. Um, thank you so much for your time. I've just got one more quick question for you, if you don't mind. It's been sure. just fantastic to chat to you today. Um, I've got a fascination with numbers, and I always love to know about the significance of a jersey number that a player chooses. Now, throughout your career at Kansas State and then with Chicago and Phoenix, you wore number 45. And then with the Kansas City Kings, you had number 20. I think at the Spurs, you wore number 32. And as a warrior, you were number 55. Is there any particular significance to those jersey numbers that you wore throughout your career? No. When I was in high school, uh, I was 25. And the reason I was 25 is because it was the biggest jersey. And that was the biggest number. Uh, went to Kansas State. They really didn't give me uh, an opportunity to pick a number. Uh, they just gave me 45, and it just seemed to stick. I always laugh about 32 here because with San Antonio, I go in the, the games and I tell my son, see, my number's retired here. They just put it underneath Elliot, Sean Elliot's name. Uh, but it's retired. And it worked out good in Chicago because, you know, when uh, Michael Jordan came back after his retirement, you know, they retired his number. He wore 45. And so I've got an autographed jersey with Jordan on the back with my number. So you can't ask for much more than that, then, okay? That's, that's fantastic. No, you can't. Now, it's been an absolute pleasure to have this chance to chat with you today, Eddie. Thank you very much, and I just wish you continued success with whatever you do in the future. So thanks again. No problem. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I welcome your interaction with the show. Suggest topics or guests that you'd like to hear conversations with. You can leave me a voicemail. Simply visit inallairness.com slash voice. Click start recording. Leave your message and press stop. You can even listen back before you submit. Press send and you're done. Worldwide, the show currently has 56 reviews, 53 on iTunes and 3 on Stitcher. Thanks for your continued support. If you add a review, I'd love to read it out on a future episode. Your ratings and reviews are definitely one of the best ways to support the podcast. If you enjoy the show, please tell your basketball-loving friends about it. Your word-of-mouth recommendations really do make the difference and they are worth their weight in gold. You can subscribe to my show in various ways. iTunes 
visit inallairness.com slash review. Add it to your Stitcher playlist, inallairness.com slash Stitcher. You can also subscribe on Pocket Casts, Player FM, TuneIn Radio, and other podcatchers. Of course, it's always available via the podcast app on your iOS device. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show and share my web address with your friends and colleagues, inallairness.com. Check out the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with high-profile guests. Follow me on Twitter at inallairness. Please add your like to the show's social hub, facebook.com slash inallairness. Join me next time for another edition of the show.